Acts chapter 13 this morning. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 13. Of course, it's great to be back together this morning, back in the book of Acts after what was a super blessed Resurrection Sunday uh, celebration last week. And as we jump back in today in Acts chapter 13, this chapter marks what many see as a very distinct break here in the book of Acts. And some people have even gone so far as to call this the beginning of Acts volume 2. Now remember back as we started in the book of Acts, remember in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, remember that Jesus told us, he told his disciples that we would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And that's what he said. And of course, that's exactly what it is that we've seen has happened. You remember first the early believers. Remember in Acts chapter 5, they were accused of filling all of Jerusalem with their doctrine. And then we saw persecution start to scatter the church in Acts chapter 8 all throughout Judea. Later, revival broke out there in Samaria as Philip preached Christ to them. And here now, as we start in Acts chapter 13, we're going to see this final phase of Jesus' commission actually start to come to pass. As Paul is about to launch out on his very first missionary journey, which ultimately would take him to what we call the ends of the earth, beginning that story that we're continuing even today. Now, not only I think is this a great reminder and kind of a review of what we've seen so far, where we've been here in the book of Acts, but I think that there's an important and a very practical encouragement in this for us as well. And that's that as we see, as we remember that throughout the scripture, the commands of the Lord aren't supposed to be heavy exhortations, but more so we can look at them as really glorious expectations. And what I mean by that is that instead of reading Acts chapter 1 verse 8 the way that some people do, where they would read that you shall be witnesses unto me, right? Get out there, pass out tracts, be my witnesses. That's what I'm commanding of you. Rather, I think that we should be reading it more like you know, Jesus is saying, you know what? You shall be witnesses to me. This is going to happen because I'm going to ensure that it happens through you. Because I think if we've seen anything so far in this book, it's that the believers have been simply responding faithfully to what it is that the Lord has been organizing and orchestrating daily. Right? The Lord is leading, and they're simply following along the best that they can. And I think as we start this next section of the story, we're going to start to see that even more clearly than before. And I think we're really going to be encouraged about the Lord's ability to do that very same thing in each of our lives as well. So let's pray and just ask the Lord really to bless uh, our time together. So Father, we thank you, Lord, again, just for the opportunity to be here together, Lord. We thank you so much for your word, Lord, and for the encouragement that it gives to us, Lord, and for the stability that it provides 
for us, Lord, this foundation that it gives to us in our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher this morning, Lord, that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today, Lord, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember when we last left off, we left off as Luke kind of tied up what we called some loose ends for us, uh, some of the details there back at Jerusalem. We watched there was uh, Herod and then this another wave of persecution that he unleashed against the church. We saw James killed. We saw Peter imprisoned. We saw the church praying earnestly for his release. And then we saw the Lord respond by miraculously freeing Peter, who then almost mysteriously kind of walked off the page, as we said, of the Acts account, really to make way for the story of Paul and the spread of the gospel now to the entire Gentile world. And we've talked about the fact that our focus is shifting here from the mother church there at Jerusalem to what would now become a very missionary church up here located at Antioch. And an entirely new age of the church is going to begin right here in our text today. Look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 13. It says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. So here in this church at Antioch of Syria, where we saw this incredible work of God begin back in the second half of Acts chapter 11, we saw the gospel preached there for the very first time to an entirely pagan people in this entirely pagan city. This city, Antioch, which was known for its wickedness and immorality and depravity. And yet in Acts chapter eleven twenty one, it said that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And then we watched as Barnabas, right, the son of encouragement, was sent up from the church at Jerusalem to encourage the believers he got there, he was encouraged by what he saw, so he went ahead and encouraged the believers just to continue on in the grace of God. And then we saw in verse 24 of chapter 11, it said that a great many more people were added to the Lord. And remember at that point, Barnabas went and he got Saul up, to, up in Tarsus and he brought him back and they ministered there together, then adding even more men, we see now, to their team. Look what Luke mentions there in verse 1. He talks about Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, because Niger means black, many assume that he was a, a black African there amongst the congregation at Antioch. Some suspect that he was even very possibly the very same Simon who had been forced to carry the cross of Jesus, and that through that experience, he came to faith in Jesus, went home then to his African city of Cyrene, where he then probably shared Jesus with his buddy Lucius, who we see here. We also saw back in chapter 11, and he may well have been one of the founders of the church there at Antioch. 
And also in this list that Luke provides here for us, he mentions this other man, Manaen, who he notes specifically had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this would have to mean that he was either a very close childhood friend growing up in those aristocratic circles, or some even suggest that he was a foster brother of that very same Herod who had beheaded John the Baptist and had presided over one of those trials of Jesus. Is interesting, isn't it, to consider that Herod and Menaean may indeed have grown up together, but they certainly went in two very different directions. And you talk about the grace and the sovereignty of God. To think about this man, Menaean, who may have grown up right there in this vile, polluted family of the Herods, and yet the way that the Lord rescued him, saved him, and put him into the ministry. And I think what's great about all the names of these five men is they communicate to us this beautiful picture of how integrated and how really colorblind the early church was. I love the way that one author put it. He said that a new measuring stick has been brought into being. It is not who you are, but whose you are. And of course, Paul would later write to the Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so in this name of these five men that Luke details for us specifically, we see that though they've come from different backgrounds and different lands and different classes and different traditions, they had discovered this secret of unity because they had discovered the secret of Christ. They were knit together in him and they were functioning together as one. They were ministering there in the spirit. It says they were teaching and they were exhorting and they were speaking words of prophecy. They were building up the body of Christ together. And we also see in verse two that they were really seeking after the heart of the Lord together. Look what it says in verse two. It says that as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So here the Holy Spirit, right? God himself speaks to these men and he gives them very specific direction for the direction of the next phase of ministry there in the church at Antioch. Now, before we get to what specifically the Holy Spirit said, or to maybe how specifically he may have said it, what I think we need to notice first is when it was specifically that he said it. Because Luke tells us it was as they ministered to the Lord. Now, it's interesting. Notice Luke doesn't say that they ministered for the Lord. He says that they were ministering to the Lord. And understand that these two things are two very different things, right? Ministering to the Lord means doing those things that please him and that bless him and that honor him, right? Worship and praise and prayer. It's listening to, it's honoring him. It's acknowledging his greatness and his preeminence in our lives. It's showing our devotion to him above all else. 
that's ministering to the Lord. And I think there's an interesting example from the history of Israel that helps us to understand how important this is to God, how near and dear to his heart this is. In Ezekiel chapter 44, and kind of in the wake of Israel's apostasy as they turned away from him, the Lord says this, he says, and the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house, ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offerings and the sacrifice for the people. They shall stand before them to minister to them. And then he says, but the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray, they shall come near me and minister to me. So it was these faithful sons of Zadok whom God reserved for ministry to himself. And in fact, this word that Luke uses here in verse 2, it's the very same word for ministering that's often used to describe what the true service of the priests and the Levites in the temple was to have been. And I think what it shows us is that in the eyes of the Lord, the most important ministry is not the things that we do ministering for him. It's not simply carrying out the tasks of ministry. It's ministering to him. It's really having that, that heart of ministry in worship and in praise and in prayer and in our adoration of him. And yet I think I can let you in on a little secret this morning. Understand this. It is always those who minister most sacrificially and devotedly to the Lord, those are always the people that we find are used most mightily in their ministry for the Lord. Because what happens is that the things that they do for the people of God are simply an overflow of the things that God is doing inside of them. There's that sense of the, the love and the grace and that mercy and that sense of devotion that flows out of them and then impacts those who are all around them. And we find that these people have a heart for the things that the Lord has a heart for and they desire to, to he make his heart known to them about the things that he's concerned with. And so I think that for these men at this time here in Antioch, I think it's very safe to say that they shared the burden that the Lord had to reach the Gentile world. I think at this point they probably sensed that something new, something special was about to happen. And so it says that they went about seeking him in a very special way. It says that they fasted, right? They set aside those legitimate physical needs of the body so that they could give themselves more undistractedly, if you will, to these spiritual realities that were a concern for the Lord. And look at what happens. We see exactly the way that God answers their prayer, and he answers them by saying that he's going to use them to do the things that he wants to do. And this is so often the way that the Lord works. He uses the very people who have a heart and a burden 
to pray for those things. These five men here, as they were leading the church at Antioch, and they were fasting and they were praying for the Lord to reveal his heart to them for what was next, and he responds by saying, you know what, I do have something specific, specifically for two of you to do, I want you to set aside, right? I want you to give to me. I want you to reserve for me Saul and Barnabas because there's a work that I have already planned for them to do. God had this unique work to which he had already appointed Barnabas and Saul. It's like Paul would later write in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are God's workmanship. And we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here, God's calling Barnabas and Saul to those good works exactly. Remember, the Lord had already revealed what his calling was for Saul. Remember in Acts chapter 9, he said to Ananias that he's a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And here, God was confirming that now it was time for Saul to begin to walk in that calling and that Barnabas was to be part of that work with him. But what I want us to notice too is that before any of those things could happen, they both had to be what? Separated to God. See, before Barnabas and Saul could do anything significant for God, they first had to be in this place of being separated unto God. Their lives had to be given over to him to be used the way that he wanted them to be used. And I think that for so many of us, we can't really say yes to God's call on our lives until we can learn to say no to the things that might keep us from that calling. And certainly it, it goes without saying, I don't want to spend any time on it this morning. Obviously, there are so many things that we can allow into our lives that can stand in the way of us being set apart unto God. And all those things that can pollute our hearts, all the things that can defile us spiritually. But what I want us to think about this morning is that there can also be good things which we might need to separate from in order to set ourselves apart for a specific work that God might have for us. And here's what I mean. I think it's significant that these two men that are called by God to go off into missionary service, probably as far as we know, they were probably the two most gifted and able men who were ministering there in that congregation, which meant that they had to set aside that good work that they were already doing and trust that work back to the Lord given to uh, those other faithful men who were there so that they could now be set apart to this new work. And I think that reminds us of another important aspect. Notice that it was while they were engaged in serving the Lord. It was while they were already operating in these giftings that the Lord had given to them, while they were functioning at teaching and preaching and prophesying. And it was as they were ministering unto him in their devotion and in their service, 
it was then that the Holy Spirit spoke, giving them even further direction for the ways that he wanted to expand the ministry he was doing through them. It was actually a missionary, Jim Elliott, who's credited with saying, as we've talked about before, it's hard to steer a parked car, right? So get moving. <laughs> and so often people will want to hear from the Lord about what it is that's next for them when they're not really faithfully doing the thing that's right in front of them. And what happens is there's something about when we're giving out that makes us that much more receptive to taking in. There's this hunger that we have. There's this extra sensitivity that that promotes within us to the voice of the Spirit. And we feel we're just more spiritually sharp and we're ready to receive the Lord's direction. And I think it was all of these things that enabled these men to hear so clearly when the Spirit spoke to them. Now, of course, we can't move on until we answer the question, what exactly does that even mean? Right? How exactly does a spirit speak? Now, first of all, remember, as we've talked about before, the Holy Spirit is a person. Right? He's the third person, if you will, of the Godhead. He has a personality, he has a will, and he has the ability to express himself. The Holy Spirit is not some sort of a force. He's not just an essence, but he is alive, and he is active individually in the individual lives of God's people. And in fact, of the members of the Godhead, right, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is actually the one who is the most active in the lives of God's people today. And he's very capable of speaking into our lives in any number of different ways. Right? First of all, through the word. Right? He can speak to us as well through another believer. He can also speak to us, as we've talked about, just through that still, small voice. And here specifically, he may have spoken through the prophetic gifting that we know some of these men had. He may have simply spoken through a, a deep impression, right? this sense of a, a burden that he placed on the hearts of these men as they labored there in prayer. I will say that we don't have any sense from the text that he spoke to them audibly, as though he parted the clouds and, and spoke down. And I love the way that one author put it. He says, I do not for a moment imagine that the assembly heard a voice. That is the mistake that we too often make. We try to force ourselves into ecstasies in order to hear the voice, and then we imagine that we hear it. The truth is, more often than not, the Spirit speaks to us supernaturally in what seem to be very natural ways. Now, we're not told exactly how it happened here, but I believe we've all experienced this very thing in our own lives. Oftentimes, it's just that unshakable sense that we have that we're supposed to do something. And no matter how we might wrestle with God, the sense doesn't go away, it just increases. And certainly the pages of Christian biographies are filled with missionary testimonies about how it was that the Lord directed them to their specific mission field. 
right? This burden that they have, this unexplainable love for a specific group of people, or maybe it was for a country that they'd never even been to before. I think I've shared with you guys personally, one of the reasons that I ministered as long as I did over at the church in Santa Cruz, right? For 20 years, we ministered there. And one of the reasons was this continued love and this burden that I had for the people of that church. I felt like I carried them on my heart until the Spirit spoke to me and had me praying about starting to come over here and minister in Mountain View. And I remember on that summer Sunday morning, I came and I shared. And I remember as I was sharing that the Lord just broke my heart for this group of people that I barely knew. And I remember leaving, and I couldn't get your faces out of my mind. I couldn't get your souls really off of my heart. And that was the thing that the Lord used to confirm for me his calling for me to be here. And here we are. Once the Spirit had spoken to them clearly here at Antioch, it was time for them now to respond to him. And look at what their first step was. Look there in verse 3. It says, Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now I love this verse because what we see is that once they had prayed and fasted for the specific direction from the Lord, and then they had received that direction from the Lord, the very first thing they do is they fast and pray again about the direction that they just received to make sure that they had heard it correctly. And what verse 3 shows us is that this whole work required such a substantial dependence on God, and it was through fasting and prayer that they demonstrated how dependent they were on him. Now, the really exciting thing to me about this whole passage is that this is the first strategic work of the church that we've seen so far in 13 chapters, right? Everything that they've done to date, they've done in reaction to things that were happening around them as a result of the persecution, right? They were scattered and driven from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and even further up there into Antioch. And so we've got all of these kind of accidental missionaries that are faithful simply to share the Lord wherever it was they landed. But understand this, there were none of those people who left their homes with this strategic thought of sharing the gospel. They left their homes with kind of a survival thought of, you know, run for your life. We got to get out of here. And yet here, for the very first time, we see this idea of these two men being specifically and being very strategically sent out to do that work of spreading the gospel and of advancing the kingdom. And what I want us to really notice is who it was who was setting that strategy in place, it was the Holy Spirit, right? The strategy for this church growth came directly from the Spirit of God. And the people were simply responding faithfully to the plans 
that he had for them. Notice they, the early church seems to have done all of this without a report from a committee or any kind of demographic analysis. There were no marketing surveys. There were no focus groups. Right? Barnabas and Stahl were sent out without any of these kinds of things, but with only the calling and the power of the Holy Spirit and the agreement of the local church. See, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through the local church to equip and to enlist believers to go out and to serve wherever it is that they're called, right? The mission field, your workplace, a parachurch organization, whatever it is. And there's such a healthy balance here because the Spirit's the one who calls, the Spirit's the one who equips, but it's the local church we see here that confirms that call and supports those people and sends them out. I think it goes back to a principle that we find in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs says that there is both wisdom and there's safety in a multitude of counsel. And in the area of ministry and of missions work, this is especially true because you want to ensure that you have a number of godly individuals who are united and who are seeking the Lord together in prayer, who can agree together and recognize the calling on an individual's life. And then they can confirm their support pastorally and prayerfully, practically, maybe even financially of that new ministry direction. And all of that we see demonstrated here, Luke says, through the laying on of hands. It was kind of this formal uh, commissioning, if you will, of the work. It was kind of a, a public opportunity to promise that they would be participating, right? They're saying, look, brothers, we are one with you in this missionary enterprise. You go out, but know that we're going to be with you here at home, praying for you and caring for you. And then they sent them out to that work. And again, there's a beautiful sense of balance here because those words there, they sent them away in our text here, literally mean they let them go. Or more specifically, they set them free for the work. And I love that. They set them free to pursue that work under the direction of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you, there is not much more that's more exciting than watching someone who is serving in a ministry or who is overseeing a ministry or who's out doing ministry on their own where they are, who's following the direction of the Holy Spirit. Because when you have that, you're guaranteed that anything could happen. Look what we see next with Saul and Barnabas. We see them here stepping out in verse 4 to go to Cyprus. It says in verse 4 that being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So put a circle around this, number 4, verse 4, because with this verse we begin what's commonly called Paul's first of what would be three of his missionary journeys that Luke records for us. It covers about the next 15 years of Paul's life. This first one quickly just focused on mainly Asia Minor, which is kind of 
Turkey, right? The second missionary journey carried the gospel to Greece. The third missionary journey included return visits to all of these Asia Minor and Greece churches, but was mainly concerned kind of with the province of Asia and specifically the city of Ephesus. Some would consider that Paul's trip to Rome as a prisoner was sort of his fourth missionary journey. And some even suggest that he made even one more journey after his trial there in Rome. At any rate, we've now begun what is really a new section in this whole record of God's work as we see the Spirit sending out Paul and Barnabas. Now, for those of you who are paying attention, your first question now is, wait a minute, didn't we just say that they were sent out by the local church? But here Luke says that they were sent out by the Spirit? Must be one of those Bible contradictions. Well, no, it's not. All right, so which one is it? Was it the church who sent them, or was it the Spirit who sent them? And the answer, of course, is yes. Right? It shouldn't ever be either or. It should always be both and. Here's that beautiful balance again, right? The Christians of the church at Antioch, they sent Barnabas and Saul, but more importantly, it was the Holy Spirit who sent them. And incidentally, I think there's another little important truth here for anybody who's trying to discern God's will for your life, because notice very carefully the text says that being sent out by the Holy Spirit, what? They went. So the Holy Spirit pushed them out, but they went out. The Holy Spirit gave direction. The local church gave confirmation, but it was up to them to actually step out and to begin that journey. And I bring it up only because there comes a point when the Lord, once he's made his will clear to you, there comes a point when the Lord expects you to go. Right, to take that first step on whatever path it is he's directed you to walk. In, in the case of Paul and Barnabas, that started with a quick trip down to Seleucia. Right? It was basically just the port city near Antioch. It would be like us saying we went to Oakland right? so we could get on a ship. Right? They got on a ship and they first sailed to Cyprus that island there right off the coast of Syria. Now, of course, many people will wonder, well, why Cyprus? Well, we're not told for sure, but I would suggest simply that it was because, if you remember, Cyprus was the homeland of Barnabas. And I love this because I think it shows us that it was the Lord who gave the inspiration, but the practical application was worked out through Saul and Barnabas as they simply started to move out and to step out in that supernaturally natural way. It would have been very natural for Barnabas to want to go to Cyprus. Cyprus was home. He likely had uh, that God-given burden for the people there, not to mention the fact that they would have had practical support there, not to mention the fact that Cyprus is absolutely beautiful. Right? Cyprus was this Roman province. It was famous for copper mines and the shipbuilding industry. It was sometimes apparently called the Happy Isle because the climate was so perfect, 
the resources were so plentiful that it was said that a person could find everything necessary for a happy life right there on the island. And so all in all, it was a perfect first stop on this first journey. And as we'll see as we go on, there was also a very great spiritual need there. It says in verse 5 that when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they also had John as their assistant. Now, verse 5 is everything we learn from Luke about the ministry there at this first stop in Salamis, right? It was this main commercial city kind of on the east end of the island. And what we do learn, of course, is that Mark went with them to help kind of as a, an assistant in the ministry. We also get some insight into what their approach was. And we're going to see this is going to become Paul's kind of standard method of ministry. It says they started out in most of their cities preaching the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, this is wisdom on a number of different levels, but not the least of which is that both the Jews and the Gentiles who would have been there already in the synagogues would have been a very fruitful field for sowing the gospel, right? They were already acquainted with this sort of a monotheistic concept of the one true God of Israel, which, remember, was unique in that pagan world. They were acquainted with this idea, this anticipation of the Messiah. So there was already this this sort of a, a, a spiritual, a, very, a religious foundation that had already been laid that they could continue to build upon. Also, they could take advantage of this custom of these, the open synagogue. Now, that would have provided Barnabas and Saul the opportunity to preach. So this tradition of the open synagogue meant that any learned man or a recognized rabbi would have been invited to speak to the people of the synagogue at any one of those Sabbath meetings. And of course, with a religious reputation, with a pedigree like Saul had, remember he was a respected rabbi, he was educated by Gamaliel, they would have been so anxious to have him speak. And just imagine the way one of these Sabbath day synagogue meetings might have gone. They would have said, oh, Brother Saul, we are so honored to have you here in the synagogue with us today. Do you have anything on your heart that you might like to share with our congregation? And you could almost see the little smile on Saul's face. And he says, you know, as a matter of fact, I do have a little something that I could pass along. And then imagine the way that he would open up the word and start to share from the Old Testament scriptures, and he would share Jesus with them. Now, there's one more quick observation I think we need to make before we move on from Salamis, and that's, so here we have this Holy Spirit-sent team. We have this perfectly planned, wise approach to ministry. We have this tailor-made opportunity there for the gospel to go out, and we also have no record from Luke of any kind of overwhelming success at all. Now, we have to believe there was some sort of a response, maybe even that a little local church may have been established. But what we don't read 
is that great multitudes responded to the gospel. We don't read that there were a great many who heard and believed. Really, this was kind of a slow start that they got here at Salamis. And I think it's an important point for us to remember for anyone who's launching out into any ministry or simply stepping out into any new kind of a, a, an endeavor for the Lord, it's important that we keep our expectations in check and we focus first not on being fruitful, but we focus first on being faithful to the work ahead of us. And we simply learn to leave the results to the Lord. Now, we have to assume that they were probably there for multiple months doing ministry there. And then we see now going on to verse 6 that Paul and Barnabas moved on, most likely on foot. And we read that when they had gone through the island to Paphos. Now, let's pause there. From this first stop there in Salamis, they would have worked their way across the entire 90-mile length of this island to Paphos. Now, that would have been this sort of a capital city, which would have been on the opposite, the west coast of Cyprus. Now, if Salamis was famous for its industry, then Paphos was infamous because of its immorality and its worship of Venus, right? Also known as Aphrodite, the goddess of sexual love. And one author commented of Paphos that neither men nor women could resort to the shrine of Venus without being defiled in mind and depraved in character. And here Barnabas and Saul are about to face this combination of this wicked immorality and this very spiritual darkness that was very prevalent amongst that pagan world across the Roman Empire. We're going to see in the, the remainder of our text this overcoming opposition that they faced there in Paphos. So they went across the island to Paphos, and then picking up in the middle of verse 6, it says that they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. So it was in this wicked environment that Saul and Barnabas would meet their first real opposition to the gospel. And it would come from this apostate Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now, this is uh, quite an intriguing character. One historian recorded this. He says, as Bar means son, his name really meant son of Jesus. He was a renegade Jew who had gone out among the Gentiles pretending to be a marvelous wonder worker and thereby trying to profit. He undoubtedly had heard of the Lord Jesus Christ and his miracles, and that name had been mentioned here and there throughout the world. And he said, in effect, I am the son of Jesus, and I am able to work wonders even as he did. And we see that he was effective because somehow he had the ear of this Roman governor, Sergius Paulus. Now, apparently this was not an uncommon situation, right? They, these were intensely superstitious times, and a, apparently most important men kept their own personal private wizard, right? fortune tellers, these different men who dealt in magic 
and spells. And yet notice that Luke specifically tells us here in verse 7 that this Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man. And so Luke continues in verse 7 and saying that this man, so Sergius Paulus, called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So hearing of these two men right, that were traveling through his island, sharing the truth of God's love and of God's grace, this man Sergius says, hey, I want to hear more of this. But, verse 8, Elamus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Elamus, right, Bar-Jesus, basically says, hey, if my boss finds the real Jesus, then my meal ticket is expired. Now, it's interesting Elamis means, interestingly, it's an Arabic word that means the skillful one. And here we see him very skillfully standing in the way of the gospel. And what a picture, I think, of what we can always count on from our enemy, Satan. Because he will use all of his skill at the art of deception to turn people away from the truth of the gospel. And I think as, as Spurgeon only could so eloquently say it. He says, wherever there is likely to be great success, the open door and the opposing adversaries will both be found. If there are no adversaries, you may fear that there will be no success. A boy cannot get his kite up without wind, nor without a wind which drives against his kite. And I think for us, not only should we not be surprised, not only should we not be shaken up by opposition, but I think we can very often assume that opposition against the gospel is hell's way of confirming that we are rightly doing the work of heaven. Whatever situation you're in, whether it's a ministry setting or it's a marriage or whatever it is, Whatever it is we're seeking to do for the Lord, in whatever way we're seeking to honor the Lord, the opposition that we face, the spiritual attack and opposition, should never turn us back. But if anything, it should just press us forward. And we press forward because we know, as we're going to see next, that we have the full power of God behind us. Look what it says in verses 9 through 11. It says, Then Saul who is also called Paul. Aren't we glad Luke finally cleared that up for us? It says, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So here's Paul, right, using the spiritual discernment, no doubt operating the gift of faith. He first rebukes, and then he pronounces the judgment of God upon Elimus because he was trying to keep others in spiritual darkness 
he now himself would be punished with physical blindness. And of course, it was such a fitting picture of his own spiritual blindness. And of course, this whole thing makes us think back to Paul's own conversion. Because remember, he was also struck blind on the road to Damascus. And remember, after that, it was only because of that he, that he came to realize personally that it wasn't until he himself was blinded physically that he started to begin to be able to see spiritually. And I think that it's based on that experience, right? Based on the fact, as we'll learn from Paul and all of the letters that he would write, Paul's heart was always for restoration, even for a guy like Elimus. And I can't help but think that although Paul certainly didn't mince words here with Elimus, his prayer, his, his heart wasn't so much, you know, sick him, Lord, as it was save him, Lord. Whatever it takes. Now, that being said, I think it's also important to say that the most severe words in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, are reserved for people who stand between people and truth. They're reserved for individuals that stand between people and God. And the truth is that if someone wants to commit spiritual suicide, that's one thing. But it is something else entirely to bring someone else down along with you. So if you want to give up on the things of God, if you want to grow bitter in your own heart against God, that is absolutely your choice, but it is a very heavy sin to draw anyone else away with you, either by what you say or by what you do. And yet look at the way that the Lord, in our very last verse, look at the way that the Lord is about to use even this demonic opposition, this encounter with Elimus. It says in verse 12 that then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So here, Sergius Paulus, right? This intelligent man who it said had desired to hear the word of God, he just became a true believer in the Lord Jesus. So this is the first sort of trophy of grace on the first missionary journey because this man was a man of position and of authority and his conversion without a doubt would have been felt across the entire island of Cyprus. Imagine people saying, you know, did you hear the governor is now one of these followers of this Jesus? And notice specifically what it is that Luke says led to this because as amazing as was the miracle of Elimus' sudden blindness, the good news that the proconsul heard from Paul was even more amazing. Luke says that he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And most probably, he was astonished at the astonishing truth of God's gracious gift to the world in Jesus through the cross. Imagine this pagan 
proconsul, right? This man who had kept a personal sorcerer at his disposal for, you know, insight and advice. All of a sudden he comes and the light goes on and he says, you mean God loves me? You mean he became a man and he came and he died in my place? You mean I can be reconciled to him and I can be forgiven by him and I can be saved and made right and redeemed? And we should hope that we would never become so accustomed to hearing the astonishing story of the gospel of Jesus Christ that it would ever become common to us. I think our prayer should be, O Lord, keep us as astonished as this man, Sergius Paulus. And as we finish up this morning, I just quickly want to circle back to where we started again, that what God promised he would accomplish, he will accomplish. Right? Is the spirits the one here setting the strategy? We simply are responding faithfully. That idea that the commands of the Lord aren't these heavy exhortations, but they're more so very glorious expectations of where it is he's taking us. He said that they would be witnesses for him, and here we're watching that very thing come to pass. And the, the point is, for each and every one of us individually, is that the Lord works in this very same way in our lives personally. Those things that he says we will be, he will enable us to make sure that we become. So when the Lord says in Leviticus 19 that you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, <coughs> he's not saying you better be holy like me, but more so he's saying you will become holy like I am. That holiness that's inherent in me, you'll also begin to enjoy. He says, you watch, right? you see, it will happen. And we remember that the commands that Jesus gives us are nevy, never heavy. And he's the one that promised us that his burdens are easy and that his load is light. And so as we read a passage like this, I hope that it's a great reminder to us that God's got this. And what it is that he says we'll do, we'll do because he's doing it through us. We'll do because he's the one doing it in us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and the great encouragement that it provides to us, Lord. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord, and the way that it is in operation in each one of our lives. Father, I pray for anyone today who's feeling discouraged or encumbered, Lord, weighted down by the cares and concerns of our circumstances, Lord, that, that you would help to adjust our perspective, Lord. Keep us looking up to heaven, Lord Jesus, where you sit enthroned there next to the Father. And Father, we pray that you would uh, just quicken our hearts, Lord, that break our hearts for the things that break your heart, Lord. Uh, empower us by your spirit to, uh, to step out and to, to minister, Lord, not just for you, but Lord, to spend our time ministering to you, Lord, and that what we would do would just simply be an overflow 
of what's going on and that work you're doing in each of us. And so we love you, Lord. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.